Well, for those who don't know me, I'm, I'm Rob Frank. Um, I'm filling in today for our senior pastor, Stuart Farley, who's in Cleveland with uh, Pastor Sheila Farley. And I extend my personal welcome to each of you uh, here and online as we explore God's Word together. And uh, glad to see a lot of new faces and some younger faces here in the uh, sanctuary. You know, you matter, and it matters that you're here with us, and it's no accident that you're here. You're right where God intended you to be, and I'm super eager to see what uh, unfolds for us today. Now, for those who are new to, to Rama Christian Center or haven't been here uh, for the past few weeks, we've been studying what it means to rule and reign in Christ using the development and maturing of David from a shepherd boy to the anointed king of Israel as an illustration. And Pastor Stewart has been through uh, seven uh, steps in a series um, that uh, deals with the maturing of us and Christ in us uh, and our faith. And I think he has three to go, but you never know uh, how the Spirit will move him and how that might turn into more. The entire series is available online at the Rama Christian, uh, excuse me, at the RamaLife.com. And uh, if you haven't been involved in the series, I encourage you to go take a look at that. I also uh, welcome you to join us on Wednesday nights at six o'clock for the Deeper Dive uh, series, where we go into the Sunday message and we kind of pull it apart and we talk about it. And uh, again, that's at six o'clock on Wednesdays. You can come live to the church or you, you can participate by Zoom. Just get a hold of the church office and they'll give you the link. Now, speaking of King David, Abby and, I, Abby and I are talking about going to the Holy Land on a trip, and we were looking at hotels, and somebody suggested we go to the King David Hotel. And we looked into it, and the King David Hotel is this you know, nice property. It's, they say it's one of the leading hotels in the world. It's 90 years old, and it's just beautiful. But we looked into the price, and it is very pricey way too pricey for me and Abby. So we began to look for other properties. Well, and we found one. We found the Hotel Goliath. It's much bigger. It's only a stone's throw away. But we hear it's a real headache to get a room, so. <laughs> I got the symbol there. What I'll be discussing today are some insights which have occurred to me so far in this series on maturing in faith and ruling and reigning. Now, I admit that my thoughts today are somewhat abbreviated. This is basically a brief review of the last seven weeks of this series. And when I did a run through uh, on this message yesterday, it was at an hour and 20 minutes. And I said, well, this is a grace-filled body, but probably don't have that much grace, so I better cut it down. So I cut, yeah, you're welcome. So, so I cut it down, and I, and I ran through it again this morning. It was like an hour long, and I said, holy smokes, I'm in trouble. So I took my red pen, and I just cut through it as much as I can. Russ has a copy of it, and he'll probably tell you there's a lot of red ink. So I cut as much as I can, and uh, I left some good parts out, but I think I'll get you out of here in, in, in short order. But I have to tell you, some of the parts I cut out I really love. I mean, I was going to sing the Muppet song for you all, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, they're clapping because I didn't sing. That's, that's, that's the thing. Abby assured me no one will get mad at me for going short. From the very beginning of creation, the adopted sons and daughters of God, that's us, were predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Romans 28, Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Praise be to God. 
Our ultimate goal as Christians is to mature until we come in to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. Pastor Stewart has charted it out in what he calls the basic diagram of spiritual life. I prefer to call it the maturation equation. I just think that's a cooler name. And I'm going to give you my take on it. Now, I'm going to show this to you because I think it lays out the importance of this series. You cannot reach conformity with the image of the Son until you mature in Christ and Christ matures within you. So here's the equation. It starts at creation. Adam and Eve are in the garden. That's A. And at B, Adam and Eve transgress. In the garden, you have the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At B, Adam and Eve turn away from life. Death enters the world due to Adam's transgression, and you have the fall of man. At point C, things change. C is the beginning of God's redemptive plan to the world. From C to D, that's God's great plan to redeem the world to him. From C to D, you have the ministry of Jesus Christ. You have uh, first Jesus being born, the ministry of Jesus Christ. You have his arrest. You have his torture. You have his crucifixion. You have his resurrection. You have the Pentecost. From our perspective from C to D, you have learning of Jesus. You have coming to know Jesus. You have a body of believers. You have someone in your life that brings that knowledge to you. You have the water baptism. You have finally knowing Jesus and giving your life to him and accepting him as Lord. And that is D. But then there's something that happens after that. There is an E through Z plus infinity. And the E to Z plus infinity is really what we're talking about today. From E to Z plus infinity is where you mature into conformity with the image of Christ. This is where you grow spiritually. This is where you Learn what you need to learn to rule and reign in Christ. You see, your salvation is secure at D. It's done. You don't need to do any more. All you need to do is accept it. It's been done for you. You can't do anything to lose it. You can't do anything to gain it. You accept it. It's grace-filled. But the rest of it you have a role in. And that role is to mature and to grow and to go into the world and to love. But you know, there's a funny thing that happens between B and E. And that thing that happens is sometimes people stop. There are some people who stop between B and C. They remain in sin. They never come to know Jesus. They never come to walk into the redemptive plan of God. And that's a tragedy. God wants no person to be separate from him. God wants no one person to remain mired in sin. God wants everyone to get to D and beyond. And when you stop from B to C, you don't get there. Another place people stop is right there at C. They stop at the foot of the cross and they don't go any further. Imagine what would have been the cost 
if Peter, if John, if Matthew, if Stephen would have stopped at the foot of the cross and not walked out their faith. If they just would have stayed there, they wouldn't have gone to the upper room. They wouldn't have gone to preach boldly the gospel. If they would have stopped there, think of the impact, the negative impact to the world. And some people stop at D. Stopping at D, and, and pastors talked a lot about this, that's the heaven and hell mindset. Stopping at D is the mindset where um, I'm saved, in my past is hell, in my future is heaven, and I'm just going to wait it out. I know salvation is, is, is guaranteed me. I don't need to do anything. This is a black and white, good and bad kind of mindset. What you miss when you have this mindset is you miss that Jesus came to give life and came to give it abundantly. And the life that Jesus came to give, that's a here and now life. It's not a someday life, it's a now life. It's the life that lives inside of each of us when we accept Jesus Christ. And when you have that heaven and hell mindset, when you just stop at D, you never get beyond that and you never get to mature. When you have that mindset, you stop too soon. Now, growing up, we played football. And we played football every day and all day if we could. We played football until there was no more grass left on my mom's yard. And when she kicked us out of the yard, we played football in the street. And we played football until the street lights came on, and then we had to go home. And we had, when we had no one to play football with, we played it with ourselves. We'd throw the ball, and we'd run, and we'd catch it. We're going to see in a minute if I can do that with these lights and a coat and a tie on. And in football, when uh, to score a touchdown, it's not enough for your body to cross the goal line. The ball has to cross the goal line. Well, one of the biggest rivalries in the NFL is the Dallas Cowboys versus the Philadelphia Eagles. In 2008, at the 49th pick in the draft, the Philadelphia Eagles drafted a really talented wide receiver named Deshaun Jackson. He was really good. On September 15th of that year, the Eagles were pay playing Dallas on Monday Night Football. Now was back when Monday Night Football was a really big deal. Everybody tuned in to watch Monday Night Football. And during the game, Donovan McNabb dropped back to pass. He did a five-step drop. I'm not going to do a five-step drop. He looked off the safety. And he saw his rookie wide receiver, Jason Jackson, just streaking down the field. He throws this perfect rainbow pass. Let's see whether I can do this. And Sean Jackson reaches out and catches it and streaks down the field. And he's gone. All the Dallas defenders are left in his wake. Now he's running for what's going to be his first NFL touchdown. Now when the NFL, your first touchdown is a big deal. You always sign the ball and you put it in your trophy case and... If you're good enough to go into the Hall of Fame, it always goes into the Hall of Fame with you. So he's running down. He gets to about the one-yard line. He drops the ball, and he starts celebrating. You see, Deshaun Jackson thought he had arrived. He thought that he'd made it. He thought that he'd crossed the goal. He thought he was there. But he stopped too soon. The ball didn't cross the goal line, and that that big, big monumental moment that he was looking for didn't come to pass. Now, in football, like in Christianity, there's redemption. And the next week, oh, by the way, Philadelphia lost that game 41 to 37. The next game, Deshaun Jackson got to score. He scored 58 touchdowns in his NFL career, so he had a pretty good career. So why do I bring up this illustration? It's the same way in our faith. We have these opportunities that are momentous. And one of the opportunities which is momentous is the opportunity to grow our faith. And if we stop too soon, if we don't go from the E to the Z plus infinity, we're not going to score what we could score. We're not going to do what we can really do to serve God's purpose in our life.
We haven't arrived. We haven't arrived until we reach conformity with the image of Christ. When we stop too soon, we miss an opportunity to grow in our ability to love and to be loved. Now, this is my take on the Training to Reign series. The Training to Reign series is about moving beyond D. It's how we go from a babe in Christ to a fully involved disciple of Christ, maturing in conformity to the image of Christ. And what this is about is maturing in our ability to love and to be loved. This series focuses on Jesus' role as king, and it's often said that Jesus is properly considered a prophet, a priest, and a king. Now, the Training to Reign series focuses on Jesus' role as king, but it's absolutely essential that we realize that Jesus fulfilled all of these roles, prophet, priest, and king, and he fulfilled them and, and many more all at once. So the fact that we're focusing on one doesn't mean that he wasn't all the others. So a king is one that has a rightful, complete authority over another. And Jesus was given complete authority over creation at his birth. Uh, Luke 1, 31 through 33 tells us, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. While Jesus was a king when he was born, he was also a baby. And just like any baby, Jesus had to learn to walk and to talk, to read and to write and to reason. Jesus was king, but before he could fully walk in his kingship, he needed to grow and to mature. As king, Jesus was destined to rule and reign, and we were predestined to rule and reign with him. And just like Jesus, we need to mature before we can do that. Now this is where David comes in. The historical account of David as he transitions from a shepherd boy to a king of the nation of Israel is an account of how one matures into a king. The account is set forth in the first and second books of Samuel, and a study of David's life gives us the guideposts that we can look to in our own journey from the point at which we accept Jesus as babes in Christ to the point where we are ruling and reigning in Jesus and coming into conformity with the image of Christ. Now, God never wanted Israel to have a human king. He saw that there were some real downsides to that. And he allowed the people of Israel to get what they asked and to be like other nations as long as they were willing to accept the consequences. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, Saul was anointed king of Israel. By 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul had turned away from God and built a monument for himself. By 1 Samuel chapter 16, David was anointed king. And even though he was anointed king, Saul remained king for quite some time. It was through David's lineage that Jesus, the ultimate king of kings, is born according to prophecy. Now, it's not enough that David was anointed king. He needed time to mature from a shepherd boy into a powerful man of God, fully equipped to rule and reign, just like us. After being anointed by God, King David was king positionally. He had the position and the title. But he wasn't a king experientially. He hadn't lived out what it means to be a king. The same is true for us. When we accept Jesus, we are anointed by God to rule and reign in Christ positionally. We have the title. We have the right. But we're not there experientially. We've not yet matured sufficiently in Christ to live out what it means to rule and reign in Christ. So how does this maturing process work? This is really what Stuart's been talking about. The authority and the power that was lost through Adam's transgression is restored to us when we put our trust and faith in Jesus. In Adam, we are spiritually dead. We may walk, we may talk, but we're no more real than my friend Mr. Bear Bear here. 
But you know, Jesus came to give life. John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief does not come except to steal and kill and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The present life of Christ within us is the life-giving force which changes us from spiritually dead, essentially an animate doll, into a fully alive son or daughter of Christ. Death reigned through Adam, we reign through Jesus Christ. Roman 5.15 For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2.8 you have put all, thring, all things in subjugation under his feet. For in that he put all subjugation under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. Legally, a believer begins to rule and reign in Christ at the moment of salvation. But experientially, it's a process. God takes every believer through steps of maturity building and character building in us. He gives us more and more ruling responsibility as we get older, older in Christ. The phases of David's life represent the specific lessons we must learn, and they're, they're as follows. In David's time in Bethlehem, we learn to be faithful in natural things. In David's time in Adullam, we learn to be faithful in need. In David's time in Hebron, we learn to be faithful in relationships. And in David's time in Zion, we learn to be faithful in ruling. Each of these steps are cumulative. Each step becomes a part of you, and each step builds on the one before. Now here's my bottom line of this whole series that Stuart's been preaching. What's this series really about? It's about love. Each of the character-building steps along David's path from Bethlehem to Zion is intended to grow our ability to love and to be loved. God is love, and the portrait of who God is is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Our Christian walk, the manner in which we mature into conformity to the image of Christ, is about expressing the life of Christ within us, and that expression is through the manner in which we love. The essence and the sum of Christian character must be to love or we've just missed the mark. John 15, 12 through 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. John 15, 7. These things I command you, that you love one another. 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Matthew 22, 34-39, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And looking at this church body, John 13, 35, By this... All will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. To paraphrase the book of John, by this you will know if you are maturing, if you grow in love for one another. In my view, each of the stages of David's life can teach you about loving others and being loved. Faithfulness in the natural builds the capacity, confidence, and opportunity to grow our ability to love. You know, David's time in Bethlehem focuses on how he interacted with the physical world. He was a shepherd boy. In his time, that was a very menial task. So menial, his brothers made fun of him. But you know, he took it seriously. When a bear, a ferocious bear, came and took off with his sheep, he tracked him down and he killed the bear. When a lion grabbed his sheep, I don't have a lion with me, he tracked down the lion and he killed the lion. He took his role seriously. When the forces of Israel took the field against the Philistine, his father Jesse said, hey, go bring your brothers some lunch. 
and he dropped off the, the cheese and he dropped off the bread and he found out what was going on. And he heard about the giant's challenge of one-on-one -on -one death match to see who won the day. And David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So David goes to Saul and he makes his case. He says, hey, you know, when the lions and the bears, they carried off the sheep, I went and fought the lion, fought the bear and killed them. And they turned on me, I killed them. I grabbed them by the hair and killed them. Your servant has killed the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. He went out to face the giant with a shepherd's staff, a sling, and a pocket full of rocks. And he killed the giant with his first blow. David was faithful in the natural. He was willing to lay down his life for his father's sheep. He loved his father. He loved the sheep. He was faithful in the natural. He was willing to stand on the field of battle against the giant. He loved his nation. He loved his God. He loved his brothers in arms. He was faithful in the natural. He was willing to bring his brothers lunch. All right, it's probably not in the same category, but still shows some faithful in the natural. And faithfulness in the natural builds your capacity to love. You know, when you do the small things, you learn what's necessary to do the big things. David trusted in God, and that trust gave him the capacity to do things. You know, I imagine David fighting my ferocious bear friend here. And that faithfulness is what gave him the capacity to stand against a giant. Ask yourself, what opportunities in the faithful are you, giving, are you being given that will give you the capacity to fight later battles? Confidence. You know, doing the small things in the natural gives you confidence to love and to love big. Have you ever noticed that winds just kind of stack up, that you kind of get on a roll? U.S. Uh, Navy SEAL Admiral William McRaven uh, discussed this at the University of Texas commencement in uh, 2014. He was discussing the difference that one person can make in the world. He was discussing it in the context of SEAL training. And this is what he said. And this is all about doing the little things. If you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride and encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And at the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you'll come home to a bed that is made, that you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. Amen. Getting that first win under your belt, accomplishing that first thing in the natural can give you the confidence necessary to handle the big things that are gonna come at you during the day. It's going to give you the confidence to have the boldness to step out and to love people even when they seem unlovable, even when they may not really want to be loved. And face it, sometimes it takes confidence and boldness to love people in this world. You know, just as David's love for his sheep gave him the capacity to stand against bears, as ferocious as they are, his smaller victories and those things also gave him confidence in God's protection over him and allowed him to take down a giant. Be confident in God's protection over you and think of the giants that you can slay. Being faithful and natural will bring you great opportunity, opportunity to prosper. And like David, when the world sees you're successful in the natural, as the world notices, you'll be giving more and more opportunities. And with every opportunity comes a moment when you can touch and move in the lives of others. 
Every opportunity gives you a chance to get into somebody's life and to love and provides you with additional opportunities to succeed. And that has that snowball effect and you'll continue to be able to reach additional people and succeed. As Christians, our growth is dependent on maturing our capacity, confidence, and opportunities to love. That's part of the E to Z. Take advantage of it. Now, faithfulness in need, that's the lesson of a doulum, builds the compassion and perseverance needed to grow our ability to love. At this point in David's uh, journey, David was on the run. Saul was very intent on killing him and had expressed that, and David was afraid. I don't know how many times in 1 Samuel it talks about David being afraid, but they made a good point of it. And David finally escapes to the cave of Adullam. And all those who were there were distressed or in debt or discontented. And 400 men in need came to David, looking to David to meet their needs, because he had been successful. They were there not so they could help David, but so David could help them. And most would have little need of David after their needs were met. And you know, that's kind of the problem with the Dulem relationships. Um, they're relationships born of need, and once the need is met, sometimes the relationship can dissolve. But they're still important relationships because they give you an opportunity to love into someone's life and to touch their lives, if only for a moment. And that moment might be that very important moment that moves somebody from here to here. And you gotta take advantage of that opportunity. Even though David was in great need, he met their need. When you're faithful in the natural and opportunities come and you have the capacity to meet them, you stack up more wins. In John 15, three, when Jesus tells us that greater love has no man than this to lay down one's life for his friends, this is what he's talking about. The Christian walk requires you to set aside your life and your needs and use that time to meet the needs of others. And you know, you can't love without compassion. You can't feel compassion until or unless you involve yourself in the lives of others in important in intimate ways even when you're in need. You know, Abby can tell this story better than I can tell the story because it's the story of my mom's and she used to tell it to us all the time. Uh, when my brother was born, he was born with a heart condition. Now, in today's world, this heart condition would be nothing. I mean, it wouldn't be anything to worry about. But in 1968, 69, 70, it was kind of a big deal. And we were stationed in Taipei City, Taiwan. And his condition was getting worse, so they wanted to medevac my brother and my mom back to the United States to Bethesda Naval Station uh, for treatment. So they took my mom to the airport and they put her on you know, one of the big medevac planes with the web seating on the outsides. And my mom hated the fly. She was scared to death. And she had this little baby infant with her. And on this plane were, it was a medevac flight, so they were medevacing the wounded out of Vietnam and there were grievously wounded young men on this plane. Beautiful young men with burns and bullet wounds and amputations, all with grievous injuries. And they saw my mom and they saw my brother, and as my mom would tell this story, her eyes would tear up about these young men, and how they passed my brother from man to man, feeding him, changing him, taking care of him, so my mom wouldn't have to because she was panicked and in distress. These young men, facing incredible needs on their own, met the, need, met the needs of my mom. And you know what? She didn't have anything to give back to them. They didn't expect anything back from her. These young men showed their compassion. They met the needs of my mom, even though they were in great need of their own. This is love. This is the kind of love that you need from E to Z. It's the kind of love that we're called to grow into. When you give, when you don't have much left to give, it builds strength and perseverance. Sometimes it's tough continuing to give when you know that those you give to uh, 
uh, don't intend to give anything back. And even if they intend to, they're not likely to be able to. You know, multitudes followed Jesus when he was doing miracles, but only 10 were in the upper room after he was resurrected. Only 120 were present at the Pentecost. What happened to all the multitudes? Yet Jesus continued to do the will of his Father. Gordon Mary is the director of the Cable Huntington Emergency Medical Services. He and his paramedics and emergency service workers under him are responsible for responding to drug overdoses in Huntington. Uh, one month, I think it was August of a couple years ago, they had 27 heroin overdoses in four hours. Day after day, Mr. Perry and the, and the folks that work under him see families ravaged by the drug epidemic. They don't have the financial resources or the number of, number of people required to respond. These men and women are responding nonstop around the clock. They're tired, they're worn out. Every day they see tragedy and it impacts them negatively emotionally. Yet in the face of this, they don't stop. Every day they respond. Every day they save lives. Every day, even when they themselves are hurting, they persevere, they love. The lesson of a dualum is one of self-sacrifice. In order to love, you must give of yourself when you are in need. You must have compassion and perseverance to give even when you're in need. That's what Jesus teaches us is true love. If we're ever to rule and reign in Christ, we must learn this lesson. We must be faithful and long-suffering in love to those in need. The third stage of David's journey was in Hebron. Now, Pastor Stewart has finished one part of the two parts of this, and you can all tune in next week for Stewart's take on it. Um, so this is kind of fun because I get to give my take on it before I hear really what he has to say in the second part. Um, and it's, it's going to be kind of funny to see uh, how, how different my take is from his. The lesson of Hebron is learning to be faithful in relationship. And he discussed it in the context of covenant relationships. Learning to be faithful in covenant relationship is maturing in love. Covenant relationships are required to turn individual victories into corporate victories. In Hebron, instead of coming uh, to have their needs met, these powerful men of God came to anoint David king of Israel. Their relationships with David were no longer based on need, but on the realization that God had brought them together for a special reason. Covenant relationship is a relationship between two partners who make binding promises to each other and work together to reach a common goal. It's relational and personal. These are mutual relationships and powerful relationships. They are strong and they are long lasting. They're not based on, hey, just what can I do for you or what can you do for me? You know, they're based on what can God do through us together? You know, it's the old adage, one man can send a thousand to flight, two men can send 10,000 to flight. Loving and being loved requires that we be able to enter into and maintain such relationships. It is these relationships that bring us the strength and trust required to endure. You know, and there's many just easy examples of these relationships. Marriage, when done right and according to God's purpose, is a covenant relationship. The U.S. military's motto, leave no man behind, is a covenant relationship. Christ's sacrifice in our redemption is a covenant relationship. The church, as Christ's body, is a covenant relationship. You know, God didn't intend us to be defeated or downtrodden. He intended us to be victorious. He intended us to be victorious individually, and he intended the church to be victorious corporately. Covenant relationships are how our individual victories become corporate victories. Each of us is different. Each of us is unique. Each has a purpose, every single one of us. Covenantial relationship is how all of these differences, all of these talents and gifts work together to serve God's ultimate purpose. You've heard the term scaling up. In business, scaling up is a, is a phase of company growth 
It's building more and more capacity for production. In terms of our spiritual maturity toward conformity with the image of Christ, covenantal relationship is the way that we scale up love. The way in which we grow love and give it more capacity, make it more productive in the lives of the people we reach. You want to scale up love? Enter into powerful, mutual, God-based relationships with other believers and watch what happens. Our world needs individual love. Nothing's more important. But it also needs love on a large scale that the body can bring to bear when the church body acts together in covenant relationships. This is how we turn individual victories into big victories. This is how our individual journeys from D to Z become the victory of the church body from D to Z. You know, we've seen it right here on the church campus. Groups of powerful men and women gathered together for a common purpose, bound to each other by their covenant as disciples of Christ. After the flood, Samaritan's Purse was here. Mennonite Disaster Relief was here. The members of this body were here. Members and pastors of other churches were here. Young people from sports teams were here. Even the flood victims themselves were here, all in covenant with God, helping each other, loving each other. That's a covenant relationship. That's how we show love to the world. And it happened here. Praise be to God. But you know, entering a covenant relationship within the church isn't enough. There are believers outside of this church body, outside of Raymond Christian Center, that share a common purpose and can be faithful in covenant. We need to reach out to these believers. We need to have covenants with them, not just with everybody in Raymond Christian Center. There's a whole world out there of believers. We need to reach them. We need to interact with them. And you know, there are people who are unsure about God or who are downright hostile to God with whom we can covenant. Why am I saying this? What better way is there to introduce a non-believer or an intentional disbeliever to Jesus Christ than to enter into a relationship with someone and let them know the Jesus that we know? the Jesus who's inside of us. Reach out, be faithful in relationship, love, change the world. Each of these four steps, each of these phases allow us to grow more Christ-like in how we love and how we allow ourselves to be loved. Now this is my favorite part of this message. This is why I chopped a whole bunch of it because I wanted to make sure I got to hear it. This process of loving and being loved, of being made alive in Christ, of being made real and maturing in Christ, it's organic, it's messy. It can leave you worn and threadbare. It can leave you, you know, a little bit shabby. Human relationships are fundamentally messy. Babies are goopy. They kind of ooze from everywhere. You know, when I first started working in the nursery over there, I was the designated puke cleaner-upper. <laughs> Babies are kind of gross, but we love them. Every kid who was ever raised is a danger to themselves or others. You don't believe me? One church picnic, I looked over to find Maya and Jacob Barker 40 feet up in a pine tree. We still love them. Every teenager is sullen and knows everything. I know that I did. We still love them. Every parent is too strict. I know I am. We still love them. Every grandparent is too lenient. Grandy's here, so I won't comment on this. We still love them. And you know what? All are absolutely beautiful and perfect. All people in every stage of their lives are an absolute expression of the beauty of God. They're all precious in God's eyes and should be precious in ours. But you know, living life is a messy thing. Our problems are messy things and our lives are messy things. You know, substance use disorders are messy. My dad was an alcoholic, I know that firsthand. Economic hardships are messy. Domestic violence, relationship breakdowns, homelessness, spiritual malaise 
are all messy. Even our victories are messy. Don't think so? Look at a men's locker room after any sports victory. It's messy. Look at the problems that can come with success. They're messy too. The diversity and the challenges in the pure chaos of what it means to be alive and to be, and to be human is part of the joy of life. Standing in these messes and overcoming through Christ is part of the joy of our faith. No one wants to watch a movie where nothing happens, where read a book where the characters face no challenges. How boring would Star Wars be if Darth Vader stepped out to meet Obi-Wan Kenobi and they reach for their lightsabers and instead they decide the dark side of the force and the light side of the force really aren't that different and they go and they decide to go have a drink together at the pub at Tatooine. Wouldn't make for a very good movie. The same chaoses and challenges and struggles that make life messy also make it worthwhile. You know, there's a movie called Shadowlands that's about C.S. Lewis's life and, and the death of his wife. And there's a line in the movie after his wife died. It's, the sorrow now is part of the joy then. And the part of the joy then is part of the sorrow now. And that's how life works. Overcoming the challenges is what gives life joy. And loving and being loved is a messy job. If you're going to love if you're gonna make a difference, if you're gonna impact people the way that God has intended you to, if you're gonna be, be spiritually mature in Christ, you're gonna to have to get in the middle of people's lives. You're gonna to have to step into things. You can't just wait on the sidelines. You have to get in the game and catch the pass, even, even if you might look silly on YouTube 20 years later. You know, you've probably heard of the show Dirty Jobs. Loving people should be at the top of that list. Now, loving people can leave you a bit worn out. Your fur, it gets dirty and gets worn. You have threads in the back where, I won't say somebody stabbed you in the back, but you sure got holes there. Or in your neck where, well, I don't know, maybe somebody tried to take your head off and up the side of your head and your, your ears flop and you're flabby and your joints, they're a little loose. And you know what, you're just overall kinda shabby. But that's part of what it means to be real. That's part of what it means to love. When Maya was young, I would read her a story about what it is to love and what it is to be real. And as Stuart worked through this series, I thought about this story, and it really describes what it means to mature in love, to mature into a disciple of Christ. The story is called The Velveteen Rabbit, and you guys have probably, some of you, at least those with kids, have probably read it. It's a story by Marjorie Williams, and it's about a stuffed rabbit who wants to become real because she loves a little boy that owns her. And in my favorite part of the book, she's in the attic with an old toy horse. And this rabbit asks the toy horse how you become real. And this is what the toy horse tells the stuffed bunny. What is real? Asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came to tidy the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up? He asked, or bit by bit. It doesn't happen all at once, 
said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been rubbed off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But those things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. I suppose you are real, said the rabbit. And then he wished he had not said it for he thought the skin horse might be sensitive, but the skin horse only smiled. The boy's uncle made me real, he said. That was a great many years ago, but once you were real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. Once you are saved, you can't be unsaved. It lasts for always. Weeks passed, and the little rabbit grew very old and shabby, but the boy loved him just as much. He loved him so hard that he loved all of his whiskers off and the pink lining to his ears turned gray and his brown spots faded. He even began to lose his shape and he scarcely looked like a rabbit anymore except to the boy. To him, he was always beautiful and that was all the little rabbit cared about. He didn't mind how he looked to other people because the nursery magic had made him real and when you were real, Shabbiness doesn't matter. We are the rabbit, and God's love makes us real. We become. It takes a long time from E to Z. But we become. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes we get a bit shabby. But God only sees the love. And that's how we need to begin to see each other. Life will rough us up a bit. I know I feel a bit shabby most of the time. And my joints certainly aren't what they used to be. In fact, I'm trying to get new ones. And, and look at Dave here. He's even worn away most of his hair. But if we don't get to the point where we see only love, if we don't get to the point where we're okay with our fur being worn and looking kind of grubby and our nose rubbed off and our ears tattered. We're not going to be where we were meant to be. This comes from stepping into the lives of people. This comes from taking the risks of being loved and the risks of loving people. And you know, we've got to be patient. We can't stop too soon. Becoming real, becoming mature and alive doesn't happen all at once. It takes a long time. You don't get there if you break easy, if you can't persevere. You won't get there if you have sharp edges and can't feel compassion or give out of your own need. To get there, to grow to the point where you become a velveteen disciple, you must take the lessons of David and apply them to how you love and how you can increasingly grow in love. The crises that the world thinks are political, that the world thinks are economic, they're really spiritual. And in my opinion, they're in part caused by the lack of God's people showing love in the world, by the too few of God's people showing up in the lives of others. All of you are beautiful. All of you are powerful. All of you matter. And all of us are a bit shabby and a little bit threadbare and a little bit bent out of shape. But that's the cost of loving. And we should all pay it gladly. We are all in our own way, velveteen disciples, given life and made real by God's love and the life of Christ in us. That's the lesson of David. Being made real requires that we mature in a manner that allows Christ to be formed within us. It's by being loved and loving in the natural. It is by being loved and loving in need. It is by being loved and loving in covenant relationships, and it will be by loving and being loved 
when we reign. You know, the Christian call is a call to go. It's not a call to sit on the sidelines. David continually asked God what he should do, and David listened. Jesus asked God what his father's will was, and he listened. Each of us should be continually asking God what he wants. And you know, the asking part is pretty easy. We're all pretty good at the asking. At least for me, I'm not so good at the listening. But that's a skill we need to practice. You know, when I began to read of David, I was amazed at how often David would ask God and then he'd listen to God and God would say, go, go here, go there, go do this, go do that. David would listen to God, he'd go do it and he'd be successful. And when he listened to God, he grew. God's way of maturing David was to get him out in the world, get him active and get him involved in his own life and the lives of others. The word go is found in 228 verses, 45 chapters, and 32 books of the Bible. The word go appears about 150 times in Matthew's gospel and is mostly spoken by Jesus. The other gospels, it's just about the same. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all, all creation, Mark 16, 15. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, Matthew 19, 21. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I am not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, John 20, 17. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. God's call to action in our lives is clear. We cannot deny it and still be true to God's word. But how often do we deny it or fail to act? How often do we stop too soon? How often are we content to play the stuffed bear rather than acting like a real live bear? We allow fear to hold us in place. You know, as David sat in the caves of Adullam, he was afraid. God said go and he did. We need to do the same thing. So you're afraid to step out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus? Guess what? We all have fears. Fears of rejection, of being bullied, of being singled out, of being made fun of, or just thought, you know, hey, that guy's a weirdo. My own mother told me I had no business giving a message from the pulpit. Y'all might agree with her after today. I don't know. God said go. Go. We allow our concern that we're not trained enough or educated enough to hold us back. I feel that time every time, I feel that way every time I'm around professional pastors. I didn't go to Bible college, I don't have a divinity degree. Well, you know what? Neither did Peter. Go. We let our feelings of self, lack of self worth, you know, the bad things we've done hold us back. We know Paul did some pretty bad things too. Go. The praise and worship team can, can come on up if they'd like. Not done yet. Not done yet. I, I got a question to ask you, and this is, this is really the tough thing. What would the cost have been if David did not go? What would the cost have been if he had stayed safe, tending his sheep, never fighting off ferocious bears or giants or standing up to tyrants or leading armies? What would the cost have been if Peter did not go? If instead of following Jesus, he chose to just be a fisherman? What would the cost have been if Paul did not go? What would the cost have been if Jesus did not do his father's will? You heard Stuart often recount the many times he almost left the ministry, the many times he almost stopped too soon. What would the cost to each of us had been if he had done so? I know the cost to me in friendship, in love, in brotherhood, and in my growth in Christ would be incalculable. Now this is the question I want each one of you all to walk out of here with today. What is the cost of you playing it safe? What is the cost of you stopping too soon, of you failing to heed God's call to go? What is the cost to the world 
to those that you may reach of you not getting into the middle of people's lives and getting your fur roughed up a bit and looking a bit shabby. All of the barriers, all of the excuses that we use to play small do not serve God and they do not serve others and they do not serve our growth in Christ. You won't grow playing it safe. You won't meet the needs of others remaining in a safe shell. You won't serve God's purpose in your life unless you lay down your life and take up Christ's cross and follow him. Will this leave you worn and threadbare? Will your eyes hurt and your fur get rubbed raw? Will you need stitches from time to time? Yeah, but you know what? You're gonna overcome all that and you're gonna feel life. You're gonna be alive. You'll end up being a velveteen disciple. And yeah, just like the rabbit in the story, just like the bear on the stand, you're gonna be kind of shabby. But you know, anybody who is real will not see you as shabby or misshapen. God certainly will not. God will only see you as an adopted son or daughter of God, powerful, beautiful, alive, ruling and reigning in Christ. Now, go and love others. Thank you.